This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for January 4th, 2022. I'm Glenn Geek, and this is episode 2842. Well, we don't have a first Tuesday of the month episode right now, so we're working on that, and so hopefully in the next couple of months that will be filled. So today I thought I would do something a little different. There's a fellow podcaster named Dan that does a show called Based on a True Story. His show is all about analyzing movies and finding out which parts of them were true, which parts of them were Hollywood, and which parts of them were just not even close. I love his show. I've listened to many episodes. I just got done listening to an episode on the movie Bonnie and Clyde, and it was fascinating. I've listened to many of his different episodes. And what's really cool about his show is you can go down and pick the movies that you've seen and then go listen to the episode. And what it made me want to do was watch the movie again. So in the case of Band of Brothers, he did three episodes on Band of Brothers, and uh, that forced me to want to go back and watch the movie again. So I really like his show. I wrote to him and told him that, and he did an episode on the movie Seabiscuit, which, of course, is one of the top three movies we talk about here on Horses in the Morning. It's one of Jamie and I's favorite movies. I think it's on everybody that's a horse person's favorite movie list. Uh, So he really went through it. I mean, he went through this movie step by step, scene by scene, and talked about what was real and what wasn't real and what was Hollywoodized. So I asked him if I could use it today, use this whole entire podcast, and he said, yes, thank you, Dan, appreciate that. So we're going to we're gonna share this with you today. Now, if you're, this is a warning, if you're a person who wants to believe everything in the movie Say Biscuit was exactly like it was, uh, then don't listen to this episode. If you would like to hear the fascinating story of what was true and what wasn't and, and what they did Hollywood eyes, uh, then take a listen. Now, we all know the basics of the story was, were true. It's in history, right? We've talked, you know, Seabiscuit lived. He did all those things in the movie. It's just how things happened. Maybe we're a little sensationalized in places. I found it fascinating. I hope you do too. The podcast is called uh, Based on a True Story. You can find it on any podcast player. Just search for that. Go down and pick the ones you want to listen to. Uh, But for today, let's hear what Dan had to say about Seabiscuit. And oh, by the way, Dan, I cannot imagine the amount of work that goes into analyzing these movies like you do. So good on you. It must be a lot of pre-show preparation. Here it is, Seabiscuit. On today's episode of Based on a True Story, we're going to compare history with 2003's Seabiscuit. Seabiscuit is based on a book of the same name by Laura Hillenbrand and adapted for the big screen by Gary Ross, who also directed the film. It was a smash hit, getting nominated for seven Oscars, including Best Picture. Unfortunately, it didn't come home with any of those awards, but on the other hand, I've received numerous requests to cover this movie, so that's just as good, right? (laughs) Okay, maybe not. Interestingly, this is not the first time that the story of Seabiscuit, the racehorse, has made it to the big screen. There have been three other movies, actually. There's 1938's Stablemates, which includes actual footage of the real Seabiscuit. The next year, there was Porky and Teabiscuit, which was a Warner Brothers cartoon about Seabiscuit that released in 1939. A decade later, in 1949, Seabiscuit's story made it to the big screen again with a Shirley Temple movie called The Story of Seabiscuit. Then, of course, there's the version of the story that we're most familiar with to date, 2003's movie simply called Seabiscuit. I'm Dan LeFebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Before starting our story today, there's two things we need to do. If you're a longtime listener, you already know what those are. If you're new to the show, welcome. The first thing we need to do is to set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. And here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, which means one of them 
is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, Red Pollard's family lost their fortune during the Great Depression. Number two, Charles Howard had many horses other than Seabiscuit. Number three, Seabiscuit lost more races than he won. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode. And then by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is the lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. The last thing to do before getting to the meat of our story today is to find out what we'll be covering next week over on the producer's feed. And that would be the final countdown. That's the 1980 movie about the USS Nimitz aircraft carrier as she sent back in time with her entire crew along to just hours before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Since they've got a fleet of F-14s and other advanced technology, not to mention the knowledge of history, they must decide what to do. So that's what we'll take a look at next week over on the producer's feed. If you aren't on the producer's feed, you can get access to that by supporting the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. All right, now let's begin our dive into the true story behind the movie, Seabiscuit. Our story today opens with some black and white photography of old cars. A narrator says they called it the car for every man. It was functional and simple. It was easy to use. You could learn how to drive it in less than a day. You could get it in any color that you wanted, as long as you want black. The narrator continues explaining that when Henry Ford first conceived of the Model T, it took 13 hours to assemble. But then, in just five years, they were turning out a new vehicle every 90 seconds. According to the voiceover, the real invention here wasn't the car itself. It was the assembly line that built the car. The ability to take a process that used to take a long time and refine it to a point to where you could crank out results. Only after this slideshow introduction do we get some text on screen to give us some context. This is New York City in the year 1910. The basic idea the movie is trying to get across here is true, but there's more to the story. For example, I know the movie never tries to imply the Ford assembly line started in 1910, but I could also see how that would be the message communicated from this opening sequence. The truth is that it was on October 1st, 1908, when the very first Model T was produced. It definitely wasn't the first car to ever be made, but most historians agree it was the very first car to be widely available. In fact, the name Model T itself implies that there were other cars before it. Ford's first car was the Model A, and there was the Model B, and so on. Most of them were prototypes and didn't ever make it to production, but by the time they hit the Model T, they were onto something. As a little side note, this can quickly get really confusing because Ford's next big hit after the Model T was, in fact, the Model A, a car they produced starting in 1927. But that wasn't the same Model A that was a prototype before the Model T. Different models, same names. A big reason for the success of the Model T was because of the price point. In 1908, a Model T cost only $850. Today, that's about the same as $24,000. Sure, that's a lot of money, but it's still cheaper than a lot of cars even today. Days after the first Model T was released, some 15,000 or so orders were placed, making the Model T, an instant hit, and it only grew from there. Initially, the Model T was made the same way every other car was made, manually. Then, just like the movie says in 1910, another major factor that went into the success of the Model T came into place. That was the assembly line. Although, again, this was not something invented by Ford. In fact, it was Oldsmobile's founder, Ransom Olds, who really generally is credited with inventing the assembly line for his Oldsmobile curved dash car in 1901. However, it was Henry Ford who built on that idea and transformed it into something revolutionary with the Model T. 
The year the movie gave was correct, too, in 1910. That's when Ford moved the assembly plant for the Model T to a new facility in Highland Park, Michigan. And that's when something resembling what we think of as an assembly line really began to take off. The movie mentions it used to take 13 hours to make a car, but then the assembly line changed that to see a new car being completed every 90 seconds. Well, that's true. It's not really a good comparison. I mean, it's not like it literally took 90 seconds to assemble a car from scratch. That's just that they had a lot of them being produced at once, and so the end result was that there were a lot of them being cranked out. Instead, I think a better comparison that they should have made was to compare how long it took to make a car from scratch before and then how long it took to make one from scratch after the assembly line. That would be anywhere from 12 and a half to 13 hours to make a Model T in 1908. And then by the time the assembly line was put in place, new Model Ts were being created from start to finish in 93 minutes. But that's only part of the story. Because of the incredible time savings, the cost to produce the car dropped like crazy. While this obviously helped Ford earn profits as a company, it also helped drop the price of the car. Remember how we just learned the Model T or the first Model T cars were affordably priced at $850 in 1908? By the time 1925 rolled around, you could buy a Model T for $300. Today, that'd be the same as taking a car that's cost $24,000 and dropping the price to $8,500. Same car, much cheaper price. No wonder by the time the Model T was replaced with the newer model in 1927, the aforementioned Model A, almost half the cars in the United States were Ford Model Ts. Oh, and that little joke the narrator said about how you could get the car in any color you want as long as it's black That's not actually something that the movie made up. It's something Henry Ford told his team in 1909. Quote, any customer can have a car painted any color that he wants, so long as it's black, end quote. Going back to the movie, it's in New York City in the year 1910 when we're introduced to Charles Howard. He's played by Jeff Bridges, and we see him at first as he's assembling spokes on wheels, Someone who we assume is his boss comes up and gives him a new pile of wheels that need spokes. Charles jokes that they should make better spokes. His boss comes back quickly with, oh yeah, then what would you do? Without expecting an answer, his boss leaves Charles to wonder, what would I do? After this, we're introduced very briefly to Chris Cooper's character, Tom Smith, out on the open range. He's riding a horse and chasing more horses across beautiful green fields with a mountainous backdrop. Both Charles Howard and Tom Smith were real people. The overall gist to this introduction is true, although there's more to the story. Since the movie introduces us to Charles first, let's do the same here. After he was discharged from the U.S. Army in 1903, Charles Howard worked for a short time as a bicycle mechanic in New York City, just like we see in the movie. But he didn't stay there long. At the age of 26, and according to his own recollections many years later, he arrived in San Francisco with a total of 21 cents to his name. As for the other character we're introduced to in the movie here, Tom Smith, it's correct to show that he was quite the opposite of Charles Howard. And, quite honestly, it's because of that reason we don't know nearly as much about Tom's early days as we do about Charles We know Tom grew up in the countryside of Georgia. He was quiet, and of course, he loved horses. For a while, he worked training horses for the Croatian cavalry. Going back to the movie now, we're not in New York anymore. We're in San Francisco as we see Charles standing in front of a shop. The sign says, C.S. Howard's Bicycles. So we can assume this is his shop. There's another sign out front that says, Now open for business. Apparently, he's moved from New York City to San Francisco to open up his own shop. But things don't seem to be going too well. There are a few cuts that show time passing throughout the day, and passers-by, although friendly, don't seem interested in Charles' bicycles. After falling asleep out of boredom, Charles awakes to a steaming engine. It's a car with the word Stanley written in script on the front and steam bellowing out of its engine. The driver gets out and tells Charles that it's a Stanley steamer and the boiler blew. Can you fix it? 
After looking at it in a way that's clear he's never seen a car before, Charles turns to the driver with confidence. Sure, I can fix it. Later, after some time looking at a pile of pieces he's torn out of the car, apparently he has fixed it. Not only that, but he's improved on it. He tells the driver the next day that he should be able to expect speeds of up to 40 miles per hour now. The driver looks amazed. Really? Then the camera cuts to Charles in another situation saying the same thing. You should be able to get speeds of up to 40 or 50 miles per hour now. Except he's not wearing the apron he had on before. Now he's in a clean suit talking to another man who also appears to be well off. As Charles convinces the potential car buyer that cars are better than horses, in the background of the shop we can see a sign that says, Howard Buick. The basic gist of this is pretty true. Even though Charles worked in a bicycle shop in San Francisco, he didn't stay there for long though. Just like the movie shows, he managed to save up enough to open his own bike shop. But then, Charles soon realized automobiles were the next big thing. In 1905, he traveled to Detroit where he met William Durant, who had taken over control of Buick the previous year. At that time, Buick was in hot water and not doing well as a company. Durant was trying to rectify that. One of the ways he did that was by looking for people to distribute the cars. And you guessed it, Charles Howard was one of those people. When Charles returned to San Francisco after his visit to Detroit, he had the rights to distribute Buicks in California. So, in a nutshell, that is how Charles earned his fortune. Although the movie never mentions it, Charles Howard really started to earn big bucks the year after he returned to San Francisco. And realistically, it had nothing to do with his repairing cars like the movie makes it seem. That was in 1906. And if you remember what happened in San Francisco in 1906, you already know where this is going. At about 5.12 a.m. on Wednesday, April 18th, San Francisco woke up with a jolt. The 7.9 earthquake took the lives of somewhere between 700 to 3,000 people. In the midst of the chaos, the horses that would normally help with rescue operations were either hurt themselves or too frightened to be helpful. As it turned out, Charles Howard's Buicks were some of the only working vehicles around. Charles Howard's automobiles became the first cars to be ambulances in the city. It proved to be the kickstart Charles needed, and the success continued to roll from there. Going back to the movie, we're introduced to another character next. It's a young Johnny, or Red, Pollard. He's played by Michael Angenero. We see Red as a teenager in a fairly wealthy family. After all, his father, who's played by Michael O'Neill, is thinking about buying the 16-year-old Red a horse. His mother, played by Annie Corley, thinks young Red should earn the horse. At least, I think it looks like they were a wealthy family. I saw some reviews of the movie that mentioned how Red grew up in a middle-class family. But in either case, we know from history that John Red Pollard really did grow up in a wealthy family. Born in 1909 in Edmonton, Canada, the very early years for Red were lacking for nothing. This was in large part due to his father and uncle's brickyard that they founded at the turn of the century. Then comes the crash. In the movie, we see it hit as a newspaper headline from the San Francisco Chronicle with big, bold text taking up half of the top of the fold, reading, Crash. If you pause the movie here, you can see the subtitle saying, Market Collapses in 6,410,030 Share Day, Talent Hell, and Steal Among Heaviest Losers, end quote. Or was that number 16,410,030? We can't really tell in the movie because the newspapers are bundled together with string that blocks the number. In the voiceover that happens next, we hear the date of October 29th. However, we don't hear what year it was. And interestingly, the movie got that date wrong by five days. It was on October 24th, 1929, that the stock market started to crash. Although, maybe we can give the movie a little leeway because after Black Thursday, as it was called, the stock continued to collapse until the date the movie says, October 29th. That's when the collapse on Wall Street carried over to the New York Stock Exchange and ushered in what we now know as the Great Depression. 
According to the movie, Red Pollard's family was one of the millions of families across America that was affected by the stock market crash. But Red puts his knowledge of horses to work, earning a little money by helping someone named Mr. Blodgett at a local racetrack. The movie never really shows the rest of his family, the children around the table we saw just earlier, but Mr. and Mrs. Pollard are back at the track with Red. As Red is watching horses run around the track, he turns around to see his mother crying. What's wrong? Red's father hands him a bag. What's this? Everything, his father replies. It's Dickinson, Wadsworth, even your Milne. Mr. Blodgett has a real house. His wife cooks. Don't worry, we'll call you every couple weeks. With tears flowing, Mr. Pollard tells Red that he has a gift. Don't worry about us. Go with him. After this, text on screen tells us it's six years later and Red Pollard is now played by Toby Maguire. That's not really how it happened at all. Let's start with Pollard's family's financial collapse. It was not the Great Depression that brought Red's family to poverty. Sadly, that happened years before. It was in June of 1915 when Edmonton had one of their worst floods in history. The Pollard's brickyard was destroyed in the flood, and with it, the family's livelihood. That is what cast the Pollard family into poverty. Although it's not like the Great Depression helped. Like millions of others, the Depression touched every corner of the globe. As for the way the movie shows Red's father and mother suddenly giving him away to someone named Mr. Blodgett to live, that's not how that happened either. As far as I can tell, Mr. Blodgett is an entirely fictional character to depict something that did happen, but not in the way the movie shows. You see, they didn't just hand him over. Instead, the Pollard sent a guardian to watch over Red while he went on a tour of racetracks and tried to make a start as a jockey. But in the end, it was the guardian who left Red out of the blue and suddenly left him alone to fend for himself. He was only 15 years old when that happened. Honestly, we don't know for sure if Red could have found his way home at this point. What we do know is that he didn't. The next major plot point to happen in the movie takes place when we see Charles Howard's son, Frankie. He's played by Dylan Christopher in the movie, and he looks to be no more than 14 or 15 years old. The movie never says how old he is, but he's very young. Still, there's a moment where Charles tells Frankie he'll teach him how to drive the truck. Frankie tells his dad that he already did that. As Charles goes off for some work meeting in town, the camera follows Frankie as he puts a toolbox in the truck and starts to drive away. He can barely see over the steering wheel and has to look down every time he shifts gears, but for the most part, he's driving pretty well. Not great, the tires veer off the side of the road a bit, but it's a dirt road with grass shoulders, so it's not too bad. But then we can see trouble coming as the camera gives a bit of an overhead view and shows another truck coming Frankie's way. We don't see what happens, but the camera cuts to Charles at his dealership. The phone rings. He picks it up. Then the camera cuts to the wreck. Frankie's truck is on its side, smoke still pouring out from underneath. The glass is broken and Cracker Jacks are floating in the water by the truck. Charles races to the scene of the accident, and in the next shot we see him holding his son's body, crying. Soon after their son's death, we see a shot of Charles's wife, Annie, getting in a car and driving away. The implication here is that she's leaving Charles, something that's sadly common as two grieving parents struggle with trying to deal with the loss of a child. Annie is played by Valerie Mahaffrey in the film. Sadly, much of this is true. It just didn't happen like we see it in the movie. Oh, and Annie wasn't Charles's wife's real name. That was Fannie Mae. Probably the biggest difference here is that the movie makes it seem like Charles's son is his only child. In truth, Charles Howard had four children. That doesn't make losing a child any easier, though. It was in early May of 1926 when Charles and his wife, Fannie Mae, were out for business for the weekend. Back home, their 15-year-old son, Frankie, decided to go fishing with a couple of his friends. To do that, he borrowed one of his dad's old trucks. The three must have had a fun time. The crash happened when they were on their way back, and it wasn't because of another truck, but instead Frankie swerved to miss a big rock in the road. He lost control of the truck, and it fell into the canyon below. Frankie's friends were thrown from the truck. Frankie, however, was stuck underneath the truck. 
The two boys ran as fast as they could to get help. The nearest physician wasn't very near at all, and by the time he got there, Frankie was already gone. Just like the movie shows, Charles was understandably devastated. Who wouldn't be? After months of seclusion, it was in Frankie's honor that the next year, 1927, Charles decided to spend $30,000 to build a new hospital in nearby Willits, California. That's about the same as $440,000 today. And speaking of today, while Charles built the hospital with the name Frank R. Howard Memorial Hospital, today you can find it with the name Adventist Health Howard Memorial Hospital. Even though Frankie may not have been saved in time, hopefully with a new state-of-the-art hospital nearby, other tragedies may be avoided. And leading the new hospital was none other than the town physician who tried to revive Frankie at the scene of the accident. Back in the movie, we see life as a jockey isn't paying well enough, so Red is trying to earn a living in underground boxing matches. That doesn't go so well either, as the only match we see happening finds Red getting his right eye badly injured. After this, there's some text on screen to let us know we're in Tijuana, Mexico in the year 1933. Because of prohibition in the United States, Red has gone to Mexico to drown his sorrows in booze and women. But liquor isn't the only thing made illegal. According to the movie, gambling has been outlawed too, and the border town, as the movie calls Tijuana, was born to provide everything to the south that their neighbor in the north wouldn't. We see lots of people, presumably Americans from the way the voiceover makes it sound, drinking and finding companionship, as the movie calls it. We also see Jeff Bridges' version of Charles Howard in the stands of a horse race. The movie calls this the chance to turn bad luck into good, and it seemed that's exactly what Charles is trying to do. The whole premise here sets up that, despite having completely different backgrounds, most of the main characters in our story today wind up in Mexico in 1933. Red Pollard is there as a jockey to race, and, well, probably a fair amount of booze and women that we mentioned earlier. Charles Howard was there to bet on those races and see if he could change his luck. And Tom Smith was there because, where there's horse racing, there's a need for someone who knows how to take care of those horses. And even though we hadn't seen him up to this point, two new characters enter the scene here. One is another jockey by the name of George Wolfe, who seems to be a good friend to Red. The other is Marcella Zabala, and she's played by Elizabeth Banks. Oh, and as a fun bit of trivia, the actor playing George Wolfe in the movie is Gary Stevens, who's not your traditional Hollywood actor. Gary Stevens is a Hall of Fame jockey who earned 5,187 career victories, including nine Triple Crown race wins. When the movie was being made, Gary was still riding. Although, at the end of 2018, Gary announced his retirement. The movie showing Red Pollard getting into boxing is correct, although the specific fight we see in the movie was made up just to get the point across. The movie's mention of Marcella Zabala is also correct, what the movie doesn't mention, though, is that technically Charles was still married when he met Marcella. But it was, like the movie shows, because of prohibition that Charles started going to Tijuana to the horse races there. Although, maybe that's not the right way to phrase that. Maybe it wasn't just because of prohibition. Surely there was plenty of other things on Charles' mind that sent him looking for distractions. The loss of his son weighed heavily on him. Many historians suggest that Charles never truly recovered from that. The dissolution of marriage with Fannie Mae probably didn't help either. They weren't officially divorced yet, but the marriage was strained, to say the least. Something the movie doesn't mention, though, is that Marcella was a family friend. In fact, she was the older sister of one of Charles's son's wives. As we learned earlier, Frankie was not Charles' only child, and because the movie implied that he was, that's probably why they had to change how Charles and Marcella met. The truth is that one of Charles's sons, Lindsay, was married to Marcella's younger sister, Anita. If love at first sight is real, that's what Charles and Marcella had. Of course, Charles was still married at the time. And there was an age difference that some people might not like. Charles was 52, while she was 25. Soon after meeting for the first time, Anita had a child and Marcella moved in with Lindsay and Anita to help with the baby. As a byproduct of this, Charles and Marcella got to see each other more often. Before long, Charles' marriage with Fannie Mae ended, and in the fall of 1932, Charles 
and Marcella were married. Going back to the movie now, thanks to some urging from Marcella, Charles has gotten some enjoyment from riding horses again. So he's in the market to buy a horse, maybe a few, to race them. As they're looking at horses and on the lookout for a trainer to train whatever horse they pick, Charles sees Tom out in the distance. In response to Charles asking who that is, Charles Strub, he's played by Ed Lauder in the movie, tells Charles that that's just a crackpot. He used to be a trainer, but now he takes care of just that one horse. It's a beautiful white horse we saw Tom rescue from being put down because of having a broken foot earlier in the movie. Later, Charles meets up with Tom out in the bush where Tom is camping out. Tom explains to Charles that the horse won't be able to race again, but you don't throw a whole life away just because he's banged up a bit. In the next scene in the movie, we're in Saratoga, New York, and it's three months later. Charles and Marcella are there with Tom. It would appear Charles hired Tom to be his trainer. Even though the details of movies are always going to be fictionalized, the way the movie introduces Tom Smith to Charles Howard is, well, not how it happened. In truth, it was a little bit more luck. Who you know, that sort of thing. The movie doesn't give us a year for this, but we know that this happened in 1934. You see, around that time, Tom Smith was a horse trainer struggling to keep a job. He was broke. The horse stalls he worked out of also served as his home. And to top it off, he shared the stall with another down-on-his-luck trainer. Despite this, though, Tom knew horses. And one of the horses he was taking care of at the time just happened to be owned by a good friend, of Charles Howard. So it was that man named George Giannini who mentioned Tom Smith to Charles Howard. He knew Charles was looking for a trainer and he thought he might have just the guy for the job. As soon as they met, Charles knew George was right. Tom was the guy for the job. The movie doesn't mention this and we haven't really yet either, but during his time in the U.S. Army, Charles trained at Alabama's Camp Wheeler to join the cavalry. His health never allowed him to reach that goal, but he knew a good horseman when he saw one. And that's what Tom Smith was. After this, when we hop back to the movie, we meet the hero of our story today, Seabiscuit. The narrator tells us that the first time he saw Seabiscuit, the colt was walking through the fog at 5 o'clock in the morning. The he in this instance being Tom, who we see watching a jockey leading Seabiscuit along the track through the fog. According to the movie, Seabiscuit was a small horse at barely 15 hands. Not only that, but he was limping. There was a wheeze in his breath. Seabiscuit was hurting, but that didn't matter to Tom. He could help with that. The narrator goes on to tell that Seabiscuit was the son of two horses named Hardtack and Man of War. While that's true, probably the biggest difference here is something that the movie doesn't show. By that, what I mean is that the movie seems to imply that Seabiscuit was the first horse Charles bought. It implies Tom was only training Seabiscuit. That's not true. In fact, Charles had a lot of horses. Some of them were winners, some were not. But Charles wanted Tom to find a new winner for him. Sure, he had the money to go out and buy any horse he wanted, but he didn't want to do that. He wanted Tom to find a horse that was overlooked. To find a cheap horse that Tom could turn into a winner. The movie mentions that Tom first saw Seabiscuit at about 5 a.m. It's a foggy morning in the movie. However, according to Lauren Hellenbrand's great book that the movie is based on, Tom first saw Seabiscuit in Boston on a sizzling hot afternoon in June of 1936. But the movie got Seabiscuit's parents correct. Hardtack was his sire, making one of the greatest racehorses of all time, Man of War, his grandsire. Oh, and if you're not familiar with that terminology, basically that means Man of War's son was Hardtack and Hardtack was Seabiscuit's father. Heading back to the movie's timeline now, the next major plot point happens when Charles buys Seabiscuit for, as the movie describes it, the rock bottom price of $2,000. Today, that's about the same as $37,000. The key reason for his cheap price, as the movie explains it, is because Seabiscuit has done nothing but lose in races. As he's aged, he's no longer the horse that used to love sleeping for the entire day. Now he's cranky and mean-spirited. He's tough to handle, 
and basically not a horse anyone wants. But according to the movie, Tom Smith likes what he sees in Seabiscuit. He likes that spirit. So Charles purchases Seabiscuit. The basic gist here is true, but there's more to the story. For one, Charles Howard didn't buy Seabiscuit for $2,000. He paid $8,000 for the horse. That's about the same as $146,000 today. That sounds like a lot of money, and it is. But for a bit of comparison, in 1939, there was an offer to sell Seabiscuit's grandsire, Man of War, for a whopping $1 million. I say offer because his owner turned down the offer. $1 million in 1939 is the same as about $18.3 million today. Although the movie doesn't mention that Charles put a stipulation on the purchase, it was simply that Seabiscuit had to do well in his next race. And he did. Sure, it wasn't a pretty win. Seabiscuit fell way behind before coming back to get the victory, but a win's a win. The deal went through in August of 1936, and Charles Howard was now the owner of Seabiscuit. Next step was finding a jockey for his new horse. There's one moment in the movie where we see Seabiscuit throwing a fit, three men trying to hold him down, while a little ways away there's Red Pollard fighting off a few other men on his own. Between them we hear the music change and we can tell Tom Smith has an idea. Red is spirited, Seabiscuit is spirited. Maybe there's something there. Although it is true that Seabiscuit was a very temperamental horse, and even though Tom Smith was the one to discover Red Pollard, it didn't happen the way that the movie shows. It also didn't happen where the movie shows it happening. It was in Detroit in August of 1936. If you recall, that soon after Charles Howard bought Seabiscuit and Tom began to search for a jockey. Well, as fate would have it, that's when Red Pollard was in a car accident. For Red, it had to feel just like another kick while you're down. At this time, Red was broke and homeless. Little did he know at the time, but that car accident would change his fortune. You see, after the accident, he and his agent, who was with him in the car at the time, were forced to hitchhike back to civilization. They made their way to the Detroit fairgrounds. That's where they ran into Tom Smith. We don't really know what those initial conversations were actually like, but since Tom was looking for a jockey, he decided to see how Seabiscuit would react to this one that stumbled into his lap. In the movie, the first time Red Pollard meets Seabiscuit, he offers the horse half of an apple. In truth, it was a sugar cube that Red offered to the temperamental horse. Seabiscuit responded by touching Red's shoulder. It was one of the first signs of affection Seabiscuit had shown, and Tom took it as a sign. Now, as a quick side note, when Tobey Maguire's version of Red Pollard is first introduced to Charles and Marcella in the movie, Chris Cooper's version of Tom Smith introduces the two as Mr. and Mrs. Howard. That's the first time the movie mentions the two being married. But we already learned about that earlier. Heading back to the movie's timeline now, it's time for Seabiscuit to enter the track. It's not a race, but Tom tells Red to turn him loose. We need to see what he's got. At first, Seabiscuit doesn't seem to be going very fast. He's galloping, but, well, as Tom puts it, he looks like he's sleeping. But then something changes. There's another horse on the track, and as soon as Seabiscuit sees the other horse, he picks it up. This little detail is true. One of Seabiscuit's most popular traits was that if he got a lead in the race, he'd often fall behind a little bit to let them catch up. Then he'd bolt forward to finish the race. Of course, there's no way we'll know for sure exactly what Seabiscuit was thinking or why he preferred to race this way, but it made for quite a bit of personality in the race. Going back to the movie, the next major plot point is Seabiscuit's first race with the Howard team. We see text on screen telling us it's at the Santa Anita racetrack. And based on what we hear radio host Tick Doc McLaughlin say, who's played by William H. Macy in the movie, Seabiscuit comes in with a 70 to 1 odds to win. He's a long shot. And according to the movie, even though Seabiscuit has the lead for part of the race, it was premature. Red's anger got the better of him, urging Seabiscuit to the front too soon. In the end, Seabiscuit didn't win. We hear the track commentator announce that the winner was a horse named Silver Treasure. That's not really how it happened at all. The movie never really mentions if this is truly Seabiscuit's first race with Red Pollard, or if it's just the first one we're seeing in the movie. Regardless of which it is, though, 
I've got a link to a list of Seabiscuit's racing history in the show notes for this episode, and I couldn't find a horse named Silver Treasure anywhere in them. Although it is true that Seabiscuit did not win his first race after Charles bought him, that race took place on August 22, 1936 in Detroit. Seabiscuit tired and didn't place in the top three. Oh, and in the movie, when we get introduced to William H. Macy's character of TikTok McLaughlin around here, that's a completely fictional character made up for the film. With that said, though, I personally think that he adds a lot of fun to the story. I love it. It's great to see him do all those sound effects live on air. Back in the movie, after a disappointing first race, Red and Seabiscuit take first place in the next race we see them in. We don't see any sort of timing for this, of course, so we don't know if this really was the next race or, again, just the next race that we see in the movie. After the race, Charles talks to the press and makes the analogy of how Seabiscuit, or just the biscuit, may be a little horse, but he doesn't know he's little. He thinks he's the biggest horse out there. And sometimes, when you're the little guy, you can do big things. It's an analogy that the movie ties very heavily into millions of Americans who, at that moment, were feeling like the little guy themselves. After the market crash, getting back on your feet was easier said than done. But Seabiscuit was helping to provide inspiration. It is true that Seabiscuit was often shortened to just the biscuit. And we know from history that his first win for Charles Howard, Tom Smith, and Red Pollard came on September 7, 1936 in Detroit. That was his third race after being bought by Charles Howard. Going back to the movie, there's a montage of races where we see the Biscuit make it to the winner's circle. San Onfrey, Handicap. San Miguel, Handicap. San Rafael, Handicap. Then William H. Macy's character tells us that makes six straight wins for Seabiscuit. And this streak really did happen. The first winning streak for Seabiscuit after being bought by Charles started on November 28, 1936. It lasted for three races, though, and stopped on February 20, 1937, when Rosemont won. Then Rosemont won yet again a week later on the 27th. It was after this that Seabiscuit started his streak. Seven straight wins from March 6, 1937 until August 7th of the same year. And while the movie doesn't mention it, even though Seabiscuit's streak was broken on September 11th by a third-place finish, Seabiscuit rebounded in his next race and had another three-race streak lasting from October 12th to November 5th. Needless to say, Seabiscuit was hot. He won 11 of his 15 races in 1937, making him the leading money winner in the U.S. for racehorses that year. Going back to the movie, winning races is one thing. But who are they against? Seabiscuit needs the chance to prove that he's a great horse. This is according to Tom in the movie, and he hands Charles a newspaper with a headline that reads, quote, War Admiral Stands Alone, end quote, and a subtitle that says, quote, Triple Crown Winner Has No Weakness, end quote. The movie says War Admiral is 18 hands massive compared to Seabiscuit's 15. We see Charles Howard go on TikTok McLaughlin's show challenging Mr. Samuel Riddle, that's War Admiral's owner, to a race. He says it's time for Seabiscuit, the best racehorse in the West, to be pitted against War Admiral, the greatest racehorse in the East. But according to the movie, Mr. Riddle isn't interested. As he tells the media, War Admiral has won every major race in the country. If they raced every fledgling challenger who just wants to make a name for themselves, it wouldn't be fair to us. The basic idea of this is true. Even though Seabiscuit was the leading money winner in 1937, War Admiral won the Triple Crown that season. His record in 1937 was winning eight of the eight races he was in. And in doing so, he was voted the American Horse of the Year Award. So it would be a natural for these two contenders to be rivals. However, just like the movie shows, War Admiral's owner didn't consider Seabiscuit to be on the same level as his horse. The movie gets his name right, too, Samuel Riddle. But what the movie doesn't mention is that Riddle was also the owner of Man o War. War Admiral was Man o War's sire. If that name sounds familiar, it's because Man o War was also grandsire to Seabiscuit. 
I couldn't find anything to show if that was a reason for Riddle's refusing to race against Seabiscuit at first, but it wouldn't surprise me. After all, Seabiscuit was rejected as a racehorse early on. It's worth pointing out that if we're looking at the official version of the story, the movie might have played up Samuel Riddle trying to duck the races with Seabiscuit quite a bit. Officially, War Admiral scratched from races because of muddy tracks or for health reasons. But unofficially, there's a lot of people who believe the movie was pretty accurate on that front. Sure, Seabiscuit could cement his place in history by beating War Admiral, but what could a great horse like War Admiral have to prove against Seabiscuit? It's the sort of logic that makes sense. Going back to the movie, Charles convinces the track owner, Charles Strub to host a race with a $100,000 purse. Charles offers to put up the money himself, knowing it'll attract some of the greatest racehorses from the East. Winning a race like that will force War Admiral's owner to take Seabiscuit seriously. Except, even with a purse of $100,000, War Admiral's owner turns down the offer. Disappointed but undeterred, Charles decides to continue with the race anyway. There will be some great horses there, and at some point War Admiral will have to face him. According to the movie, the race includes some other great horses. We hear names mentioned like Special Agent, Indian Broom, and the ones to worry about, Rosemont. When we see the race, Seabiscuit shows a slow gain through the pack. Slowly but surely, he passes one and then the other. As they come around the final turn toward the end, Seabiscuit is in the lead. Then, with the end just in sight, Rosemont comes on hard. The movie snaps a still photo that shows Seabiscuit falling short by a nose at the finish line. The text on the image says it's February 27, 1930. Well, the last number is cut off. We know from history that this race took place on February 27, 1937. And it was, just like the movie shows, at the Santa Anita Handicap. However, in my research, I couldn't find anything to suggest that Charles Howard was the one that put up $100,000 for the race. That was just what the purse was. Earlier, we also learned that Seabiscuit lost to Rosemont not once, but twice. And as we learned earlier, those two races were in between Seabiscuit's first streak, the three-race winning streak, and the massive seven-race streak that the movie shows earlier. So the timeline in the film is a little bit off here. After the loss to Rosemont at Santa Anita in the movie, Tom is upset at Red. He tells Red that he warned him about Rosemont coming up at the end. That's exactly what happened. How could you not see that, Tom yells. Red replies, I can't see out there. This is when a new bit of information is unveiled. Red is blind in one eye. Tom is more than upset. But Charles calms him down, repeating the exact line Tom mentioned earlier in the movie about a horse when he was mending. Quote, you don't throw away a whole life just because it's banged up a little bit. End quote. This is sort of true. I mean... I don't know if Tom yelled at Red like we see in the movie, but it is true that Red Pollard was blind in his right eye. The movie seems to heavily imply this happened when he was boxing earlier in his career, but in truth, it was the result of getting hit in the head by something being kicked up by another horse while Red was a youngster. It rendered his right eye permanently blind. But it was a secret that Red kept throughout his whole career. Was this why Seabiscuit lost to Rosemont? Because Red couldn't see him coming? Maybe. As far as my research indicated, though, Red Pollard kept the secret of his being blind in his right eye throughout his entire career. I couldn't find anything to suggest that Charles or Tom found out about it here like we see in the movie. Speaking of the movie, going back there, Charles Howard decides to take the race to War Admiral. Red Pollard will stay the jockey. He will also enter any race where War Admiral is on the cart. If War Admiral scratches or leaves for the race... Due to Seabiscuit being added to the race, they'll do the same thing for the next one. And the next one. Everyone loses a couple. You either pack up and go home or you keep fighting. We're going to keep on fighting. They'll keep at it until Seabiscuit can face off against War Admiral. Charles takes the loss against Rosemont as a great PR opportunity to strengthen the nation of fans behind Seabiscuit. We see a montage of cities. A newspaper boy holding up the San Francisco Chronicle. Albuquerque. Kansas City, St. Louis, Chicago, all the while Charles is keeping the PR going strong. He mentions the things everyone talks about their team. Seabiscuit is too small of a racehorse. Red is too big for a jockey. Tom is too old for a trainer. 
And for himself, Charles says he's too dumb to know the difference. So what are they afraid of? Well, this sort of PR coming from Charles Howard that we see in the movie wasn't exactly what happened. The basic idea of his ramping up the pressure on Samuel Riddle to pit War Admiral against Seabiscuit did happen. Except it happened by bringing in another person that we don't see in the movie. That would be a man named Herbert Swope. He was the chairman of the New York Racing Commission. Charles figured that if he could get Herbert on his side, Herbert could then convince Samuel to pit the two horses against each other. At first, Herbert Swope pitched the idea of Seabiscuit joining a race with a full field of horses at Belmont Park. That's not really what Charles wanted, but they started working on the plans for it. A little while later, Herbert reached out to Charles to let him know that he'd managed to convince the chief at Belmont Park to host a race that saw Seabiscuit racing against War Admiral, along with a full field of other horses. The purse for the race was set to be at $50,000. At this point, Charles Howard replied to the race by setting some stipulations to it. The date had to change. Both Seabiscuit and War Admiral had to carry a jockey of the same weight, and he wanted the purse to be set at $100,000. All of these were strategies Charles was trying to lure War Admiral to the race. For example, he knew Samuel Riddle was trying to break a record for money earned in a season. The $100,000 purse would help with that. Not only that, but if War Admiral did lose, he knew Stamuel could use the excuse of not being the one who set the terms of the race. Charles gave him an out. There was no reason to refuse. What's more, because Herbert Swope had already talked to the chief at Belmont Park and started the gears turning on a match between Seabiscuit and War Admiral, to refuse all this now would hurt the prestigious track's reputation. According to the movie, the taunting of War Admiral's owner, Mr. Riddle, seems to have paid off. A match race is set. And this is true. After all the pressure put on by Charles Howard, what was once going to be a full-field race turned into a match race. It wasn't an official match race, but it was just a good old-fashioned head-to-head. Two horses racing to see which comes out on top. One requirement from the governing body at Belmont Park for this unofficial head-to-head was that the $100,000 purse was removed. There would be no money involved at all. Then, according to the movie, two weeks before Seabiscuit and War Admiral are to race, Tom Smith decides that they need to retrain Seabiscuit. They need to train him to break first. That's not usually what he does, but Tom is afraid that if War Admiral breaks first, that Seabiscuit will never be able to catch up to him. So, they set out with a retraining. In the movie, we see this happening when they buy a bell and start teaching Seabiscuit to break at the sound of the bell. This retraining, just for the race with War Admiral... Is true. Seabiscuit's team was worried that if War Admiral got off to a great start, he wouldn't be able to catch up, and War Admiral was known for getting off to great starts. So, just like we see in the movie, Tom Smith secretly trained Seabiscuit to break at the starting bell. It was a new tactic that they hoped would be enough to keep Seabiscuit in the race early on, giving him the edge he'd need to pull his trademark bolt at the end. Going back to the movie as they're retraining for Seabiscuit, a familiar face shows up at the stables. It's Mr. Blodgett. If you recall, he was the man who took Red in and gave him a job as a groomer. Now it's Mr. Blodgett who wants a favor. He asks Red to breeze his horse. It's not a full race. He just wants people to see the horse with Red Pollard riding on top. Now that Red is famous for being Seabiscuit's jockey, Mr. Blodgett hopes that that will be enough to get people interested in his own horse. Red is happy to oblige. But then... Tragedy strikes. As they're riding by, a couple guys are trying to start a tractor. The tractor backfires and scares the horse. It throws Red and then proceeds to run for quite a ways. All the while, Red's foot is caught in the stirrup and he's being dragged behind the horse up until he's thrown into a wall. The end result here, according to the movie, is that Red's leg is shattered. After the doctors do surgery, one of the docs tells Charles in the waiting room that it's good news. Red will be able to walk again. Charles asks if he can ride. The doctor says no, he can't ride, but he will be able to walk. Of course, this means there's no way Red can ride Seabiscuit in the upcoming race against War Admiral now. This is sort of true, but the way the movie depicts it happening isn't true at all. By that, what I mean is that it is true Red Pollard suffered a horrible injury before the race between Seabiscuit and War Admiral. 
But if you remember from earlier, we learned that Red's mother and father didn't leave him like we saw in the beginning of the movie. In fact, Mr. Blodgett is a fictional character, and so that would mean his involvement here could not have happened. Red's injury also didn't happen just days before the big race like the movie shows. It happened months before. The way it happened wasn't like what the movie shows either. What really happened was that Red Pollard got suspended for an incident on the track at the end of 1937. The suspension ended in February, and Red was ready to race again. But Tom had decided to scratch Seabiscuit from the first race back from Red's suspension because it had been raining really hard. That made the track super muddy, and Seabiscuit wasn't very good on a muddy track. There was another horse, though, named Fairnitis, that was better on a muddy track. So Red decided to race her. During the race, there was a collision that caused Fairnitis to come crashing down on top of Red. In the movie, Red's injuries are mostly in his leg. In truth, Red's chest was crushed in the accident. He had broken ribs, a shattered collarbone and shoulder, and nearly died. As for Fairnitis, initially they were afraid she had a broken back. Fortunately, she didn't, and was able to make a recovery after months of rehab and close care by Tom Smith. As we learned a moment ago, that was months before the race between War Admiral and Seabiscuit. That was in February of 1938, and the race between those two horses would end up being slated for November 1st, 1938. It is true, though, that one of Red's friends, George Wolfe, took over as jockey for Seabiscuit. Although there were a couple of races that saw a couple other jockeys on Seabiscuit, but for the most part, it was George who replaced Red while he healed. And the movie's also correct in showing that Red gave George advice on how to ride the biscuit. Going back to the movie, it's time for the big race. The text on screen says it's November 1st, 1938. We already learned that date is correct. According to the narrator, Seabiscuit entered the race as a 2-1 to one underdog. It was a packed house, and over 40 million Americans would hear the call of the race between the two magnificent horses. And that's all there is. This is a match race. Seabiscuit versus War Admiral. No one else is on the track. The flag goes up. The bell rings. And the movie cuts to black and white photos of people listening to the radio. We hear audio from the radio call of the race. If you want to see some footage of that race, the real race, I'll include a link to that on the page for this episode over at BasedOnATrueStoryPodcast.com. According to what we see in the movie, Seabiscuit takes the lead at first. Then, War Admiral catches up around the back stretch, which, as movie watchers, we already know is exactly what George Wolfe wants. The movie goes into slow motion to show the two great horses side by side. They stay that way for a while. Then, George turns to War Admiral's jockey and smiles. So long, Charlie. Like a bolt, Seabiscuit is off. It worked. He did it. Seabiscuit has won the race. It's not even close. And that is true. I don't know if George really talked to War Admiral Strockley like that, but the movie does a pretty good job of showcasing this race. Just like the movie shows, Red Pollard had suggested to George Wolfe to ease up a bit. That gives Seabiscuit the chance to see War Admiral. Then, give it all you got. War Admiral's massive size saw him towering a full foot or over 30 centimeters over the smaller Seabiscuit, but that didn't scare him. A couple hundred yards from the finish line, Seabiscuit pulled away from War Admiral. He won the race by four lengths and set a new record in the process. Seabiscuit was given the American Horse of the Year Award in 1938, the same award War Admiral had won the year prior. As the movie comes to an end, we see another race for Seabiscuit. With Red still healing from his broken leg and forced to listen to Seabiscuit's races on the radio, tragedy strikes. We see it happen in slow motion when Seabiscuit goes down on the track. Later, the doctor tells Charles that his horse had ruptured a ligament. He'll never race again. Tears are in Tom and Marcella's eyes as they hear the news. That happened. The race between Seabiscuit and War Admiral took place on November 1st, 1938. The Biscuit's next race was on Valentine's Day, February 14th, 1939. George was riding Seabiscuit when... As he'd recall later, he felt the horse stumble a bit. Seabiscuit had ruptured a ligament in his left front leg. The movie got the diagnosis correct, too. 
Even though the injury was not life-threatening, Charles and Tom were told that Seabiscuit's racing days were over. According to the movie, Seabiscuit is taken to the ranch where Red is recovering. Reunited with his former rider, we see the months pass as the two recover together. Could it be? Could Seabiscuit and Red Pollard make a comeback after both sustaining injuries like this? According to the movie, against all odds, they do. They both manage to make a comeback at the Santa Anita Handicap. But the race doesn't go so well. Seabiscuit falls way behind. Then George Wolfe, riding a different horse this time, purposely falls back a little bit. He knows all Seabiscuit needs is to see another horse to pick it up a notch. And it works. Seabiscuit is off with George, encouraging them on. Seabiscuit makes his way back through the other horses just in the nick of time. It's a massive victory. The ultimate comeback story. And as much as this may seem like a perfect Hollywood ending, well, in this case, it happened. After all, there's a reason why Seabiscuit's story is one that's been passed on through the decades as an inspiration for millions. Although it is worth pointing out that the movie doesn't really mention what race it is we see him winning after his comeback. We know from history, though, that it wasn't his first race back from the injury. But it was on February 9, 1940, almost exactly one year after his injury, that Seabiscuit returned to the track. Red Pollard was his jockey, too. He ended up coming short, placing third in that race. In his next race, just a few days later on February 17th, Seabiscuit didn't place in the top three at all. But then, in what would end up being Seabiscuit's final two races, he placed first. That would be on February 24th and March 2nd of 1940, respectively. That last race was a sweet victory, as it was the race at Santa Anita that he'd failed to win two times earlier. It was also the second fastest time ever recorded on an American track for the distance. Not a bad way to end a career. Red Pollard was the jockey for all those races. Oh, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention something that the movie completely omits. It has to do with Red's side of the comeback. The movie implies it was the connection with Seabiscuit that was the driving force behind his comeback. And while I'm sure that helped, there was another driving force that helped Red recover. That would be a woman named Agnes Conlon. She's not in the movie at all, but she was a nurse who was helping Red recover from his injuries. The two fell in love, and, in 1939, they were married on Charles Howard's Ridgewood Ranch. On April 10, 1940, Charles Howard officially announced Seabiscuit's retirement. During his career, Seabiscuit had 33 victories in 89 races. He earned a total of $437,730 in those races, setting a new American racing record. After retiring, he lived out the rest of his days at Ridgewood, where he sired over 100 foals. Seven years after his last race, at the age of 14, Seabiscuit passed away from a sudden heart attack. Charles Howard buried Seabiscuit somewhere on his 16,000-acre ranch. At the site, Charles planted an oak sapling. The exact location of Seabiscuit's final resting place is something that he only revealed to his children. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. If you want to learn more about the true story of Seabiscuit, I would highly recommend starting with Laura Hillenbrand's book that the movie is based on. It's called Seabiscuit, an American Legend. I'll make sure to add a link to that book and plenty more resources to learn more about the true story behind Seabiscuit over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Red Pollard's family lost their fortune during the Great Depression. Number two, Charles Howard had many horses other than Seabiscuit. Number three, Seabiscuit lost more races than he won. Number two is true. As we learned, Seabiscuit was not Charles's only horse. He wasn't the first horse he bought either. We didn't really focus on a lot of other horses because, well... That's the title of the movie is Seabiscuit. 
Number three is also true. As we learned at the end there, Seabiscuit raced 89 times. He won 33 of them for a winning percentage of 37%. For a bit of context, the winningest racehorse of all time is Kingston, who raced 138 times and won 89 of those for a winning percentage of 65%. That means the lie is number one. As we learn in the beginning of the episode, Red's family was driven to poverty after their brickyard was flooded in the Great Flood of 1915 in Edmonton, Canada. That brings us to an end of this episode. I hope to chat with you again next week over on the producer's feed where we'll look at the final countdown. Don't forget you can find all the links for this episode. Request a future episode if you want over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, I hope you'll consider tossing in some support for the show to keep the lights on here on the show for another week over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.